Well, this is a beautiful day, isn't it? Well, let's take a look at the Word. Let's go to John chapter 6. We'll start with verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because he saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up to a mountain and sat down and there with his disciples. Now, Passover, now the Passover, a Jewish festival was near, so when Jesus looked up, he noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Jesus answered him, 200, and Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each one to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, where are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was plenty of grass in the place, so they sat down, and the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told the disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Truly, this is a prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with every person here. I just pray that, Lord, that you would open their hearts and minds to receive what is in your word. Help them to think clearly about what is here. And Lord, I just pray that everyone, as a result, would be drawn closer to you and that we might all glorify your holy name in all that we say and in all that we do. Lord, guide us. In the Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the interesting things is when last week when Bill was, was, was preaching from chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem. Well, he's not in Jerusalem. He's now in Galilee. So I think it's appropriate, especially after looking at verse 1, it starts with the phrase, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. So after this really kind of points us to when is this? Well, some interesting things I found when, when, when looking at this is um, the time here, when you look at Matthew chapter 14, and when you look at Mark uh, chapter 6, and, and the other parallels in Scripture, one of the things that you find is that this has happened immediately after John the Baptist has been put to death. So, another interesting thing here is that when you look at chapter 6 and you look at verse 4, one of the, one of the things it says here, it says, 
Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So one of the things we also know from this is that this is the second year in Jesus' ministry, okay? And Jesus had to be about 32 years of age when this happened. Why do we know this? Well, let's take a quick look at Luke chapter 3. and verse 23 as he began his ministry Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be and it goes through the genealogy backwards so he was 30 when it started when his ministry started but here's something else the, when you look at the book of John okay, the gospel of John mentions three Passover Okay, the first Passover is in chapter 2. Let's take a quick look at that. Verse 13. This is when he was cleansing the temple. The Jewish Passover was near. So his first year of ministry, during that first year, that first Passover, he cleanses the temple. Now, this is the second one, okay? So, in chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000, that's the second Passover. You know when the third one was? The crucifixion. So, something else we also know, because this was the Passover, and we know that Jesus' crucifixion was 33 A.D., 32 A.D., Passover started on March 29th, 32 AD. So we have a pretty good picture of where this is. We have a good picture of when this is. He's, he's on the Sea of Galilee, and because of what we know, when you read the parallels from the other four Gospels, well, when you look at the, the Sea of Galilee, if you, we know that he was at Bethsaida, okay? Now, Bethsaida, if, you, if you're looking at a clock, it's at about, it's between the 12 and the 1 o'clock position. But when it gets to where he is here, where he feeds the 5,000, he's clearly on the other side of Galilee. So he's somewhere between the 2 and 3 o'clock position on the lake. So, um... One little aside here that I have to bring up. Um, I went to Israel uh, the year I started seminary. That was uh, 19, well, the year after, 1996. And, you know, um, Jerusalem was an interesting place. Nice city, lots of interesting places to see. But let me tell you. Galilee is something else altogether. It is gorgeous. I mean, it's lush. The weather was so nice when we were there. And I remember thinking, why would Jesus ever leave here to go to Jerusalem? Especially knowing that he was going to die here. But 
in any case. So we know where this is. We know when this is. Now, here's something else interesting. This is the only miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. So all the Gospel writers thought that this was pretty significant. Now, each of the Gospel writers, they were there for these events, and as they put together their own Gospels, what they were trying to do was they were trying to reach their own specific target group. And one of the things that they did was they shared their own individual perspective on what was happening. And so when you look at these other, these, these parallel sections of scripture, and, and you can find the first one in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 43, and Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, when you look at those parallels, you find that there is a lot that they have in common, but there are significant and important differences that give you little details that give you a fuller, deeper picture. But the thing is that all four of these gospel writers thought that this was a significant enough event that they all had to cover it. Now, one of the other things that also has to be said is, as we were talking before, the gospel writers each had a different purpose in their gospel. They each had a different target audience with their gospel. And John's audience was a Greek audience, okay? And one of the things that he is trying to do is he's trying to emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ. When you look at Matthew, for example, he is really emphasizing the idea of Jesus as king, as Messiah. When you look at Mark, he's really trying to emphasize the idea of Jesus, the worker. And so one of the things that, that, that you see throughout Mark is, you know, immediately he does this and immediately he does that. And it's very action-oriented. When you look at Luke, He's focusing on Jesus, the man, okay? But when you look at John, they are focusing on Jesus as God. And so here's one of the things that he does. He emphasizes in his book seven miracles, okay? And let's, let's go through those real quick. The first one was we've already covered, and this is in chapter 2. And it's when he changes the water into wine. Okay? So that's the, the first miracle that he does. The second one is in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And that's when he, um, he, he heals the official's son. The, the next one is the healing of the invalid in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Then you have the, the feeding of the 5,000 here in John chapter 6, and immediately after that one, you have Jesus walking on the water in, in verses 16 through 21. The sixth one is he heals a man who's born blind in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And, and the last one is the raising of Lazarus in, in John chapter 11, verses 1 uh, through 44. 
So he shows these seven miracles. And let's face it, folks, the seven is not by accident, okay? Seven is the, the idea of the fullness of God. And so he shows these seven miracles pointing to the idea that Jesus Christ is God and we should worship him. So let's take a look um, at something else here. Let's take a look back at verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, here's one of the other things. The other parallel scriptures emphasize the idea that he was on the other side of the lake. Okay? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's not in Israel anymore. He's in Jordan. Now, the significance of this is the way the Israelites viewed things, God was on their land. God was in their territory. Outside, that's the wilderness. Outside is away from God. Outside is away from God's people, away from God's resources. It's just away from God. So, one of the things we also need to see is it says, A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Well, when you look at the, the parallel uh, scriptures, um, one of the things that you find, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. And let's go uh, to verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done, and he took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out they followed him, he welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. So we get a bigger picture here. Now, Bethsaida, if you're looking at a clock, if you're looking at Galilee and you're looking at a clock, like, like I said before, it's between the 12 o'clock and the 1 o'clock position, okay? So it's just on the inside. It's still on the inside of Israel, but it's close to the edge. And so they are, they're there, and they, they move from Bethsaida. They go to the wilderness area. They go to uh, the other side of the lake, and all of these people are following them. Because they've seen him doing all of these miracles. And it says in these parallel sections of scripture that he preaches to them about the kingdom. Now here, it doesn't, in John chapter 6, it doesn't mention that he has preached to them. But he has in fact done that. And one of the things it says here in verse 3, says he went up on a mountain 
and sat down there with his disciples. Now, one of the interesting things that, that I, I, I thought about as I read this was when you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Let's turn there real quickly. This is where he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how the Sermon on the Mount starts. Matthew chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying. So when you look at John chapter 6, verse 3, it says, He went to this mountain. You know, once the crowd got there, he went to the mountain. And he sat down, and probably in much the same way as in Matthew chapter 5, he sat down and began to teach the crowd once again. Now, verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. We covered the significance of this already. This is in the second year of Jesus' ministry. He's about 32 years old. Verse 5, so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked him this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Now, here's one of the interesting things. In the parallel sections of Scripture, no individual disciple is named. And in this section of scripture, in John, what you find is he names two disciples. First, he mentions Philip here in verse 4. And then in verse 8, he mentions Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, why mention these two? Well, here are a few things to take into account. Both Philip and Andrew are Greek names. Philip means lover of horses. Andrew means manly. Now the thing is, John wrote his gospel to a Greek audience. And maybe he picked these two, he noticed these two as a point of connection to that Greek audience, okay? So, looking back at, at verse 5 here, um, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Verse 6 says, he asked them this to test him. Now, when you look in the Greek, there's a number of words that can be used for, for test. And some of those have kind of a double meaning as in to, to test or to tempt. That's not what's going on with this word here. This word here is the word pyrizo. And it carries, it doesn't carry any negative, you know, temptation type of, uh, of connotation in any way. It's just, this was a test. Now, you know, the thing is, it says, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Now, folks, Jesus 
and those disciples, after speaking in Jerusalem and performing all these miracles, they go off to Bethsaida, and 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 they 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 go further uh, into along the Jordan, it, it, along the into Jordan, and this area outside. And at first, they probably figured they were going to be by themselves, and this large crowd follows them. And so now they have to prepare. Now they have to take care of something that they hadn't planned on. Well, here's something I think we all need to remember, folks. Nothing surprises Jesus. He is ready for everything. Now, you know, if it was you or me, we'd say, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to take care of these people? Where, you know, where are we going to get enough food? Jesus has got this under control. He's ready. But you know what? His disciples are not. Now look, his disciples have seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and they still don't get it. They're kind of slow on the uptake. Kind of like you and me. Because how many times has he come through for you? And you? And you? How many times? And every time we find ourselves in a situation that we haven't planned for, he brings us through, doesn't he? He's ready, isn't he? See, the test... It's all about you learning to trust Him. And folks, He never fails. Yeah, I fail. You fail. He doesn't fail. So, here's something else. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. You know, once again, Philip, you know, he's just thinking with his natural mind, not thinking about the supernatural stuff he's seen, not thinking about how Jesus has come through before. Yeah, even if we had that much money, we couldn't take care of this crowd. Now, a denarii, a denarius, was one man, a working man's day's wage, okay? And so 200 is, you know, just about seven months, just shy of seven months. Even if they had that much, wouldn't be enough to give everybody a little. And it's interesting. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, a few things that are interesting here. 
One is this is the only gospel that mentions that this bread is barley loaves. Now, the thing about barley loaf bread is that it is the kind of bread that a poor person would eat. What, what they had. And here's the thing. The other thing, he had two fish. Now, these fish were probably small. Mac properly sized. Yeah, Mac properly sized. <laughs> and they were pickled, or maybe they were dried. And you got this huge crowd. And Andrew's just looking at this, he says, you know, this is all we could find. How are we going to take care of this many people? Yeah, that's a problem for you and for me. Not a problem for him. No matter how big our problems are, he's big enough to take care of them. Amen? We need to always remember, no matter how big our problem is, he's going to take care of if we will trust him. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down, and men numbered about 5,000. Now, in Jewish society, they had this idea called corporate personality. And, and so... What they thought was that a man's household extended beyond his own body. It extended, his personality extended through everything that he owned, including all of his, his wife, his children. They were part of his personality. In fact, one of the things you, you, you see, you see an example of this, um, in, the story of, of Ai. Let's turn real quickly to Joshua. And go to chapter 7. So, you remember the story of AI. You know, you had this guy, Aiken, who took some stuff he wasn't supposed to take. So, starting in verse 16, here's one of the things that you see. Joshua got up early the next morning, and he had Israel come forward tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by, by heads of the families, and Zabdi was selected. And he had the, had Zabdi's family come forward, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. That, that's an issue to know whose, whose family is. So, so Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you've done. Don't hide anything from me. And Achan replied to Joshua, It's true. 
I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter. I coveted them and took them. You can see them for yourself. So they, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent the messengers who ran to the tent, and there was a cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took the things inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out in the Lord's presence. And then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his ox, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had brought him up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought trouble on us? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, the place is called the Valley of Achor still today. Now, all that is to say this. They only counted 5,000 men because their families were part of their individual corporate personalities. So there may have been between 20 and 30,000 people there. So, you know, if you thought they had a difficult problem with 5,000, try 30,000. And all they got is five barley loaves and two fish. But is that too big a problem for Jesus? It is not. Nothing is too big of a problem for him. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your individual situation, but I am sure of this, that there is somebody who's going through some difficulty right now, and their situation looks dire. Their situation looks difficult. And I'm here to tell you that if you belong to Jesus Christ today, he is going to take care of you. It just reminds me of an old hymn. And, you know, um, I love the old hymns. You know, I'm not much for singing. You know, when I when I do sing, it's mostly solos. You know, solo that nobody can hear. Right? <laughs> but I feel like singing this one. Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. Beneath His wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care 
of you. Now, you know, um, yeah, there's there's more verses, but, you know, I don't want to push my luck with singing, right? <laughs> so, so uh, in any case, um, let's get back to our text. When Jesus uh, was having the people sit down, and there was plenty of grass in that place, so they, they sat down, men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So, you know, one of the things that you, you find when you look at the, the typical Jewish Thanksgiving, okay, this is what was typical. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And it's interesting to note that, you know, normally when we play, pray, what we do is we bless the food. When they pray, they bless God. So, um, let's go to the next verse here. Oh, we need to finish 11 first. And Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed to them those to, who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, in the ancient world, people got enough to eat. Enough to survive. Enough to subsist. And here is what you don't have happen very often. They rarely ate to the full. And in spite of the fact that all he had was five barley loaves and two fish, they all ate until they were full. Once again, folks, he will take care of you. Now, something else. Verse 12. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So he had the 12 disciples collect all the stuff that was left over. And this was pretty typical that the Jews would would gather what was left over, if there was anything left over. But they had 12 basketfuls. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. They are outside of Israel. They have been fed in a supernatural kind of way. They have been fed to the full. 
What is this going to remind them of? It's going to remind them of the manna. It's going to remind them of when they came out of Egypt. And you had the 12 tribes. In fact, it's interesting. Um, in Matthew, they, they, they note the, the feeding of the 5,000, but in the very next chapter, they mention the feeding of the 4,000. Now, one of the interesting things here is the word that's used um, for basket here, kofinus. This is a very Jewish type of basket, okay? But with the feeding of the 5,000, the word used for basket is spirits. And this is the kind of basket that Gentiles used. Now, significance of, of all this is this. Hilary of Poitiers, he points this out, that with the feeding of the 5,000, you had 12 baskets for the 12 tribes. But with the feeding of the 4,000, he had seven baskets of food left over. And this was enough for the Gentiles. All this to say is, when you look at this feeding of the 5,000, supernaturally, this reminded people of Moses. In fact, one of the very next things, when we look at verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. What's he talking about? Well, in order to find out, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now, let's take a look at verse 50. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. So they're remembering this prophecy, okay? Because clearly they're out in the wilderness. They've been fed supernaturally with 12 baskets left over, enough for the 12 tribes. And all they can think about is this prophecy. And they said, truly, this is the prophet who's coming to the world. Verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew 
again to the mountain by himself. Now, here's something else interesting. They thought of him as a prophet. But they're going to try to make him a king. Now, you know, in Jewish history, prophets and kings were two different things. But this is not the only place in John where you see this confused. Let's turn quickly to John chapter 7. And let's go to verse 40. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided, and because, because of him, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So you had those who thought he was a prophet. You had others who thought he was a king. And you had a lot who were just confused. In either case, Jesus knew that it was time for him to get away. Because he knew that it was not his time to take on that role of king. And so he leaves. Now, you know, I've given you a lot of factual information. And, you know, you're probably saying, oh, you know, Greg, uh, that, that was some interesting stuff. Uh, what's that mean for me? Just a few things. Once again, nothing surprises Jesus. Number two, no matter how big your need, no matter how big your problem, Jesus is bigger than that. Number three, Jesus cares about us. I can't help but think of another old hymn. And some of you old-timers will remember this, and some of you younger guys will just, you know. You know, a lot of the the, the newer tunes are, you know, uh, you know, more kind of snappy, more kind of like 7-Eleven, you know what I mean? You know, seven words sung 11 times. <laughs> but but uh, in any case, um, this... Kim goes, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? I know, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are dreary, the long nights weary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? 
as the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to hear? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? When my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks, is it aught to him does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are dreary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Folks, it's not enough. Saving faith is not enough to know that God can take care of your problems. Saving faith is knowing that he can and that he will. You know, he knows each one of our needs. He knows where each one of us are. And he's got the cure for you. And if you belong to him, He's going to take care of you. Now, you know, I don't know everybody here. There might be somebody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ today. And there's some lessons here for you, too. You know, Jesus didn't ask for this crowd to follow him. But that crowd followed him. And he took care of them. And if you will follow Jesus Christ today, he'll take care of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a loving God, that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who is not surprised, that you are a God who is merciful, and a God who loves us. Lord, I just pray that you would help each of us to draw nearer to you, to love you with our whole hearts, to serve you with our whole hearts, to glorify you with our, all our hearts. Lord, guide us. We sing in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.